Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Professor Rene Rohrbeck. Rene is a Professor and Associate Dean of Corporate Relations at Aarhus University in Denmark, and he's also the partner of the Strategic Foresight and Innovation Consultancy, Rohrbeck Heger in Berlin. At Aarhus University, Rene heads the Strategic Foresight Research Group, which specialises in benchmarking firms' future preparedness, helping organisations manage transformational change and developing methods to increase strategic agility and innovation capacity. Before joining academia, Rene worked for seven years in industry, including Volkswagen in an electronic strategy and in Deutsche Telekom Innovation Laboratories on new business creation and strategic foresight. As a consultant, Rene has supported organisations in the automotive, ICT, water, waste and energy industries to build robust strategies, develop new growth areas and drive innovation. Rene is the author of Corporate Foresight Towards a Maturity Model for the Future Orientation of a Firm. He has authored more than 30 peer-reviewed publications. Welcome to FuturePod, Rene. Thanks very much for the invitation. Fantastic. So, Rene, let's start with question one, and this is the one where we invite our guests to just tell their story of what's your path and story for how you got into the field of future and foresight. Well, I guess my path started really in earnest when, when I was 26 and joined the, the Deutsche Telekom Laboratories. So it's the mother company of, of T-Mobile, which is maybe more known as a brand. I was tasked to, um, to help set up technological forecasting tools. We created a technology radar at that time and were then tasked to uh, use that radar and use that methodology to go out and look for new business fields for this telecommunication company, which, which came out of being a state-owned monopolist and now suddenly was, was fighting in its core market and was expected to expand into all kinds of new markets which have been opened up by, by technology at that. For me, this, this was the first time I'm, I really asked myself the question, well, how do firms renew themselves? How do they go to business fields which they are not in yet how do they create maybe even new markets and new industries? So I remember that I was quite naive and, and thought, you know, I just call up the people uh, at the headquarters and ask them about what they do and how I can connect with my technology radar to this and, and how we can then basically lay out the strategy. Only to understand that in most strategy headquarters, large firms would simply respond to challenges <laughs> so so we are there's a price battle unfolding what do we do you know we, we we have troubles with expanding into asia how to go about doing this better while i was at a young graduate you know expecting that there's you know this this whole room full of smart people <laughs> who would be constantly looking out for trends looking for new market opportunities including the ones which are very far so, so i remember i was sitting there and you know 
expecting that I'm asking an easy question by asking, okay, what, what are the methods and tools to renew our business and, and who is in charge of that? only to find out that people look at me with big eyes. <laughs> so I, I started then to, to benchmark, you know, that's at least what I would call it these days. So in principle, I was starting to ask around other big companies, um, asking pretty much the same question yeah. and realizing again and again that there's a huge preference for making sure that your current business is running the most effective and also most efficient way possible. And that means that, that we then lack this constant attention on everything which is new, different, and, and maybe uh, even more interesting as an opportunity, but not enough management attention is on it. And we often lack also the tools. So that was sort of the starting point. At that time I was hired both as, as a guy working in these laboratories and as a doctoral fellow. So in the German system, we, we would not do PhDs, but we would do doctorates. And the idea was that here comes somebody who has access to all this academic knowledge about how to plan for the future. And that person can at the same time enhance our methodology and learn something which is maybe also new to the world and and be at the forefront of what later you know, became known as, as maybe strategic foresight or corporate yeah. foresight in firms. In this logic of doing a doctorate, one um, can form an own research project, can form an own research question. And my research question at the start was simply how to improve technology foresight methods and how to improve that these type of exercises in firms have more impact. Yeah. Um, that, that was sort of initially what I was hunting for. And then, of course, the idea is that um, as a researcher, you, you access the global academic knowledge and start piecing things together to, to create new knowledge and new ways of working. And, and in principle, I mean, taking off from, from there, I started then to um, learn also that there's a lot of knowledge which is not yet being integrated. So still remember... Um, I had this, this talk with um, a French professor in Turku out in a small island <laughs> where Turku is also now known as a place for futures work. But at that time, I was together with, with my professor, with my supervisor in more community of project managers. But I'm sitting there with this Frenchman and as I'm speaking French, you know, we're getting into a good conversation. And I'm starting to explain what I'm doing. And, and he said, okay, yeah, interesting. That sounds like very stratégique or intelligence économique. And, and I've you know, never heard these terms <laughs> before. Started instantly you know, Googling with my smartphone and finding a wealth of knowledge inside French language literature, which was before completely hidden to me. Yeah. One word which needs to be added is then, then la prospective, which yes. is something which created um, Gaston Berger in the 50s. And from there on, you know, I, I started accessing also this knowledge and then starting to build more a complete global map of knowledge on foresight and, and how to set it up for organizations. Wow. So that's where your doctoral work started you on the path. Absolutely. And, and, and what, what happened then is I started to realize that in technology foresight, there is also... Um, a lot of knowledge coming from an engineering 
research background. So many firms within chief technology officer function would have such such foresight activities. Yep. And I would also realize that it often stops at taking decisions on where to invest R&D money and basically stays there. While I increasingly became interested to understand how does a company like Nokia, Finnish company, you know, which came from being a pulp and paper company, um, building rubber tires, uh, going to conquer the world of mobile telephony, um, to now being well, one of the major providers of the IT equipment for telecommunication companies, etc. How do companies like that live for so long time and renew themselves to be a completely different company? Yeah. And uh, that was something where I again realized that there's probably quite a disconnect in traditional corporate planning environments. And that is that if you um, see market creation and innovation creation as a synthesis between what I can do technology wise, what the market finds desirable on the market side, and that these two need to come together. And then eventually you also need financial viability in order to be successful. If these three things need to come together, then you realize that there's often a huge time disconnect. So the technology departments, they would easily plan 20, 30 years into the future, while for most marketing and sales functions, already the next product generation is somewhat of a blurry picture and something they don't have that much attention on. And then you also realize that this is where the high value for a firm and for the investors of a firm truly lies that you can foresee what will be this new blockbuster product in a market space which yet has to be created mm. and that is when i got really excited and started to call my work corporate foresight because i realized that by default corporates don't have such a foresight they're mm. very backward oriented at that time, also started reading the work from Gary Hamill from the London School of Economics and C.K. Pralat from Michigan, who estimated that an average top manager or top management team in a firm would spend only 3% of their time on what they call competing for the future. Yeah. And uh, that was very intriguing for me how, how that can be, because ultimately the investors expect this top management team to not only safeguard their investment in the short term, but also maximize their value of their investment in the mid and long term and how they they don't see that being part of their mandate. And that is actually something which then throughout my work as a researcher, as a consultant, has been a recurrent theme that the top management team ultimately doesn't accept to have that mandate to safeguard the firm in the mid and long term. They would quite practically say, you know, these things you suggest we should be doing, that's something that that maybe then the supervisory board or the investors at large, they would need to tell us to do. Otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm just maximizing the value in sort of the, the time of my tenure, which could be three, five years. Well, I mean, if you look at the market analysts, the market analysts would if the executives are paying attention, if the board's paying attention to the market analyst, then three months is about all they're interested in. Absolutely. That is led, I think, in my view, to a very surprising void, both on the 
execution side in large firms, but also, and there I have to, to look at myself as an educator in, in academia, also to avoid in the knowledge and the education we give the future managers yeah. on how to progress with their firms. Question two is where I ask the guests to talk to a favoured method or framework or approach that you know, is foundational in the work they do. I think for me, for me, when I think about tools, I'm often think about what do I want to achieve in the end. So the old rule applies. I think you know if if you have a hammer in hand, everything looks like a nail. Um, so I want to understand first whether it is really a nail or what I want to achieve here. And what my passion is all about is to make this more mature and more sustainable, more long-living companies um, and organizations at large exist and, and be successful. And in order to achieve this, you realize that there's at least three major issues that, that you have in order to, to achieve this. The first one is you need to see change. The second one is you need to be able to anticipate what that means. And as a strategic foresight practitioners or scholars, we know that this foreseeing how something unfolds needs to go beyond linear thinking. So we cannot say, look, here's a trend out there that we have more attention on short-term profit maximization. And therefore, we need to do something against this. Therefore, we're going to change the governance in our organizations. Um, that, that is something which, as futurists, we have understood that often a single trend would point into an odd direction. We need to understand the systemic natures on how different trends work together in order to create transformational change. And in this understanding how future worlds would would unfold there's many methods which we which we apply beyond scenarios scenarios remain to be a core method to to apply here but we often work also with system dynamics models in order to then also be able to not only foresee something but then also forecast the value of different markets under the condition of different scenarios around you, how fast markets can pick up and so on. Um, another major point here is that within this foreseeing, and we call the second step prospecting, yep. within this prospecting step, we, we need to understand what are then the tipping points. When do markets like electric mobility really take off? And this is something which is then followed by the ability, after you have foreseen this, the ability to also legitimize action set differently and also to be able as a top management team to really take the decision to, to make that major bet, put this major investment on the table. And this is something which sort of more recently came, came also into um, um, the framework we work with, which we call now probing. Because one, one would often feel after the prospecting, you just need to take some action. And that could be, you know, you invest into some innovation directly, you change your strategy, create in a risk analysis, some, some need to put some money aside for future risks and things like that. But when we now put the bar a little bit higher and say, we want actually to, 
see companies and organizations who are able to transform themselves and maybe with that their industry or the way of working in their industry then we need to have this confirmation early that there's hope because otherwise you will have many decision makers and in in decision making on fundamental change something odd happens um, and that is that this decision making is no longer driven by the same principle as you have in many other decision making which is you know one person in a top management team runs with that initiative they need to find out whether we need to disinvest in that field or move the production somewhere else and that person finds some consultants to help comes back with the answer from the consultants and then the top management team is happy about following that consumption that um, recommendation here in such a more difficult more sophisticated question whether we want to become a new type of company where we're not building rubber tires anymore but where we're suddenly investing into mobile telephony then everyone in the board has a kind of veto because everyone can just stand up and say, I think this is really, really stupid. Mm. And please show me the numbers. Um, <laughs> and nobody has the numbers because the market's not there yet. So you know, everyone can kill such yep. a yep. decision. And that means that also the method with which we help creating this decision needs to be way more sophisticated than it would be with a more standard type of decision. And this is where... I think this probing becomes very important and many firms these days have, have realized that they need to do more there. Um, they either do that by external venturing, investing in startup companies and startup companies are successful in the space and, and that's a kind of proof of concept which they can, can follow and then maybe scale such a business. Yeah. Um, or they do it through internal teams, internal venturing, say, well, if, if you have that idea, I give you a this amount of money, this amount of resources, and you have three years to prove yourself. Um, please try to build that business. And, and big businesses have been built like that. Uh, yeah. the, the Sony PlayStation was, was one of those you know, internal ventures where they said, okay, we need to have some, some serious drive behind it. Let's put a team with, with some resources on the task. Let's shield them also from the rest of the organization. And that becomes a success is also often very disruptive ideas, which, which then leave the firm, uh, the, the company SAP, who is in enterprise resource planning is a company which was founded by five people working at IBM, yeah. uh, which have inside IBM rebelled and said, look, there's the technology now becoming available to do enterprise resource planning across the entire organization. It's huge market potential. We need to do it. And while I was not inside the room, you know, you can almost yeah. hear that somebody stands up and says, there's no market out there. Come yeah. join me here on the window. Do you see anyone selling this out there? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't believe in it. And that thing is that. Yeah. In this case, five people said, well... <laughs> The idea is not that yeah. the market is there, and uh, there's no some some hundred twenty billion annual revenue which SAP is making uh, on a market which obviously is there now and everyone wants to get in, but which they captured because they were early on being very hard on themselves, were were building the product, marketing the product at the same time in order to create that that business. And I think that. And that probing, or I think in my language, I'd call that prototyping, but it's the same proof of concept stuff you're talking about. In large corporations, that is 
in my experience, probably the weakest part. They're actually fairly good at understanding what the implications of ch- of changes is, but but the but the ability to drive and test ideas for real inside an existing uh, organization is is tremendously difficult for organizations to do. Hmm. Absolutely. And there's also always, you know, the killer that you say, well, if, if you invest $1 here into such a future option and we calculate the net present value of this, then, <laughs> then you'll be close to zero because it pays only off in 10 years time or 15 years time. Yeah. While if you give me that $1 and I go out and do some more marketing, then that's the much better investment. Yeah. And that will be always true. Um, because you have this uncertainty there. And if you don't make this mental connection that in markets where there's no uncertainty, there's also no profitability. And therefore, if you want to have a high profitability, you need to embrace this uncertainty. If firms and the leaders of firms are not able to to understand this and, and draw the consequences on, on how they run their companies, then they'll be always stuck in the past and, and always stuck in these markets and industries which are on a very low level of profitability. Question three is the one where I ask Rene Rohrbeck, citizen of the world, academic and partner and father, what's the futures that are getting your attention that you see emerging, that you think are interesting, that you are both perceiving and prospecting just for yourself and maybe in the process of talking about the things you are perceiving and prospecting, prospecting maybe you also talk about maybe some things that you're probing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of those questions which can now lead to weeks and months of fantastic discussions. But for our listeners on the podcast, I guess we will try to be a bit more brief here. I think when when I reflect, like you say, you know, as as one of those roles, I think the most dominant role will always be the father role. And and of course, you wonder even more than for your own future. You wonder about the future of your children. And we're living again in a time where we have some major technological changes. I think here in in Denmark and Scandinavia, we um, maybe also around the world, um, the the most progressed in in digitalization, in in giving children access to, to digital means networks devices it's it's not uncommon here to to see a three-year-old who carries around their own ipad or or tablet (laughs) pc it's nobody would blink of course they have access to uh, some some basic networks of course they have access to games of course they have access to to video on demand and things like that it's incredible I think what what that means is that we we need to reinvent what we mean as society. So for me, of course, it's it's still very weird if I'm sitting in in a cafe and I'm sitting across with my wife and and we're looking each other in the eye, we're talking with each other, we're having dinner, and then I'm looking to to all the tables around me, and there's the mid twenties uh, year olds who 
basically all look at their own smartphone. They do have conversations from time to time, but they're living both in the virtual and in the real world at the same time. Yeah. What, what is more dominating, we don't know. But of course, here in, in most areas in the world, the time spent with friends online has surpassed for a long time ago already the time we spent with, with friends and colleagues and, and other partners offline, uh, so in the real world. So we, that creates a fundamental question about what is then society? And I think this is also something which um, fuels populism because you, know, you, you get uncertain. Am I closer to, to my pal, which I see online or like we're discussing here, across the globe you're sitting in australia i'm sitting in, in northern europe and we feel closer because of our background because of the things we share than maybe my next door neighbor here is that normal well it's it's maybe part of the future reality and mm -hmm. for me that's a big challenge to um, prepare also my children for such a future and and for all the implications which which that brings. So that's certainly one of the themes which, which I'm very passionate about. So what are you doing in order to prepare your children and also prepare yourself <laughs> for that? I think for me, the, the fundamental is to, uh, to keep asking questions. I, I still remember that my grandfather, he was often take me a little bit at a side after you know, having eaten some cake and, and he would ask me all these questions. So are you happy at school? What matters for you there? Um, and I would start explaining things. Well, you know, I'm, I've got some, some friends which used to be my friends. They're not my friends anymore. Or something is odd here. And, and he would always keep inquiring and asking, okay, but why does it matter for you? How does it make you feel if these people are not your friends anymore? what do you think is the implications of that? And, and that's something I still remember very fondly because not only did you receive the appreciation, but now I can reflect that he, he understood that he has no other way to understand what matters to me. And, and I think I've got now this, this, this dual background in a sense, having lived here in Scandinavia for eight years and having spent most of my previous time um, in Germany, that you have in, in Germany very much this, this approach, well, this new technology is for the new people. I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't have a Facebook account. Um, for sure, don't have an Instagram account if I'm a real adult. Why would I? Um, while here in Scandinavia, they say, look, the life of your child is moving into this online space. And if you're not in that online space, then you cannot help your child succeed right. there. You cannot understand their concerns if somebody now is giving a lot of dislikes on, on their last picture of their last sports event or birthday party or so. You cannot understand that impact because you would just dismiss it as something which is, you know, on, on this strange device, which you should anyway use less. And you don't understand that it's, you know, at least the same impact, maybe a bigger impact for them what happens in this virtual world in this world um, where, where you can actually still see and touch people. And this is something which, which um, I'd like to, to do, going also into different cultures, talking with my own children, but also with other children, other parents, to understand 
and prospect myself into this world where you know I'm I'm also with my children in this in this virtual. I mean, it's an interesting point what you got from your um from your grandfather was that it is difficult for adults when they don't have answers to think that they should have answers. But actually, what your grandfather did for you was he was interested in what you thought. Absolutely. And so he paid attention to you on what you thought, partly as a way for him to learn about what you were making sense of and partly just to be interested in you. Mm-hmm. And I think also what is remarkable here is that it often jumps this generation. Yeah. I think you, you, as, as a parent, you expect from yourself and the child also expects that, that you have straight answers to, to most things in life. That's, that's how you build then this trust, that you build this comfort that say, okay, you know, my mother, my father, you know, they know how things work. And if I'm really lost, I go to them and I'm expecting a straight answer. You don't expecting this, this inquiry necessarily. And, and that sort of works both ways because also you as, as parents, you're often more under pressure than if you're retired and you're already grandfather and so on. So you, you also want to be efficient about helping your child and so on. And that is something which reflecting back on, on the companies, you also realize that, and that was for me also very remarkable that when, when we do our benchmarks, we, we often sit there then with the top management team we discuss their strengths and weaknesses and perceiving, prospecting, probing, and, and also across the practices. We have two levels in our maturity model that we also can look at the practices. You, you look at them, they say, I'm fully following you here. So thanks for the assessment. I realize we, we have things to learn within this strategic foresight space, but it is not our mandate to do so. Uh, we, it's, you know, we, we're not really tasked to rethink whether as an automobile company, I now need to become, I don't know, a educational company or a entertainment company or so. And it's not our role. Mm-hmm. But funnily enough, you know, one of the new kids on, on the block in terms of automobile manufacturers <laughs> is is a Chinese investor who has created Paradise Futures, who, who comes from the world of entertainment and say, you know, once I've got cars which drive themselves around, then the major money I'm going to make is which, what happens inside the car and not the car itself. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that the real good partners to work on foresight and recreate the future of your organizations is the investors and they are often you know, family-owned businesses or businesses which have in their supervisory boards or in their investors' representation boards, they have very old senior people who you know, want to give something back to society, want to understand the full impact of what they're going to do. They are the much better partners to, um, to work with on foresight than it is with the executive team, which which indeed you know needs to to answer to the investors every three months and, and need to show that they're spending the free cash flow wisely. Yeah, and are probably only going to be there for five years before they move on to their next job. Right. Thanks, Renaud. question is the one 
if you remember when you were first learning about foresight and first getting an idea about it, is what what do you say to someone and explain what it is you do when they don't really understand what it is you do? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think, you know, 15 years ago when I started to work in that space, I, I still remember this. I, I would call people and say I'm doing a doctorate on strategic foresight or depending on which you know depending on which which language i speak the the equivalent in that language and and people would simply not know at all what this is interestingly this has changed now so Good. we we we're seeing the first faculty positions being called for instance strategy and foresight we see courses coming up we see also topics in in major conferences on innovation on strategy being just on foresight but in the early days you, you would need to explain to people that you are working on creating the future of the firm, creating the future of an industry, understanding how that interplay can be managed, um, etc. So you would need to, to dance around it. And I, from, from that moment on, I typically you know, started to use these three questions which we talked about earlier. Yeah and ask them on a personal level and ask whether their organization has already an equivalent of perceiving their environment, prospecting and how that environment might look like and probing into new opportunities. And that often did the trick that they realize we have something, but it's not really integrated. It's not really reliable. It's not system, systematic enough that we can always call on that resource if um, you know our main business is failing yeah no that's good that's a i think that's a good that's a very clever approach to talk about because this is the thing that joe voros says that foresight is a natural human process but it's trying to do it in an organization and institutionalize it that is the difficult process mm-hmm. and i think it's also I also like um, Riel Miller's approach. He often starts to explain and he, he likes to talk about anticipatory systems. So this system to get prepared for something into the future. Yeah. And he says, you know, as humans, we are born with this. Yeah. Uh, every small child, if you roll a ball towards it, will anticipate something and have a response and he has always a nice point of saying, you know, if you do that with a newly born one and, and you throw a ball towards it, the newborn will try to avoid it because mm-hmm. it sees an obstacle coming its way. It's only later that you learn, I oh, know, maybe it's actually a game. So the ball comes my way, I throw it back and I can start to have an interesting game going here with, yeah. with the person who tries to initiate that. So anticipatory systems also change, but we do have them. They're built in. Yeah. And you know, as we said earlier, these anticipatory systems, they're not built into organizations by default. And, you know, Alice, I think one, one needs to acknowledge also that in our manager education, we also have not paid sufficient attention to build these anticipatory systems, particularly in strategic management. You know, we, we came from, from an era in the 50s and 60s where it was all about planning simply planning i could market is open i can sell whatever i uh, i can produce so let's plan production let's plan meeting the market 
then in, in the 70s, 80s, it was much more about positioning. Um, so the markets are now crowded. We, we have this situation where I need to compete with others. Michael Porter's time really comes in the 90s where he says you need to build these competitive advantages. Then, then we start getting more and more interested in, in what is the underlying factors under such a competitive advantage. Is it just the kind of choice which Michael Porter emphasizes? how to position myself in the market or is it something about the resources which I have as an organization which I need to build and then exploit and then we're entering now this space of hyper competitivity um, also way more strategic moves still remember when I was starting at Deutsche Telekom the CSO at that time uh, said to me look when I started here some seven years ago that would have been somewhere around the 2000s, my CEO would literally still send me a letter and would send that every year. It's a letter, sometimes 300 pages, with all kinds of questions which he wants answers for to build his strategy. Mm. And as we stand here at 10 o'clock in the morning, I had already two SMS and one email from my CEO asking me also questions. And you realize that at that time in the 2000s, well, it was absolutely in sync that, you know, you made also strategic moves only once a year. So you ask all these questions once <laughs> a year, you get the answers once a year, and you make strategic moves once a year. Yeah. While now we're in this situation that, that even the CEO would get involved in day-to-day decision-making, which are at least labeled as strategic, we're lacking the tools to do that. So it would still be the default in many corporate headquarters that if such a question comes in, you call the consultants, you, you send out a tender, you get free different offers, you select one, you have a free month's project, you get an answer, you send the answer back. And, and that is something which only the, the leading organizations, and I'm particularly fond about a, a company like, like Bosch, an automobile company, who said, and we don't trust anymore that the consultants do the thinking for us. We want the consultants to go and hunt for the data. And then that data is, is processed here with closed doors. Yeah. And my own consultancy business is, is in principle built on that logic of saying, you know, the thinking and the building the unique offerings, making the synthesis of what is possible and what we should do. Yeah, that's a top management role and and also their responsibility and and we come in as consultants to help find data help find new inspiration of how the future could look like from experts which we build in, in panels and we help you with advanced foresight methods to to then build whatever you need to take these decisions and that can include strategic radars can include scenario-based strategizing as a method which which we have built around a number of workshops and that is something which i think now challenges again the way we conceptualize things like strategy and where many firms are still rather lost and and say okay well if if we couldn't invent our own future then maybe we just stop doing this try to be agile invest into startups and then they also realize well that also doesn't work because startups what they do is pretty public so others can copy it too we haven't built anything unique here and so on so this is 
really a reinvention of the necessity of the top management team to think for themselves and embrace uncertainty and invent something which is unique enough to capture a superior profitability or superior growth. The last question was how the leadership for organizations, I'm going to call them organizations, whether they're corporations, whether they're, whether they're political institutions, how the leadership has to own its thinking, but importantly, it has to start acting. That thinking alone is not going to work its way through the problem. You have to think and act and then continue to think as you are acting. I think the, the big challenge here for organizations and their leadership teams to be truly responsive and maybe even ahead of the curve is that on the one hand, they will always feel that there's so much more information they would like to have in order to start acting, but they also realize that the time is ticking away. So this challenge that when they want to act, they are go back to the drawing board, they, they start looking for data uh, or trends or inspiration, realizing that now this decision is not imminent anymore because the wheel has turned around. So they're already too late again. Yeah. Uh, now that all the data came in, it's there because the market is also there and some competitors have captured that market. So in order to be ahead of the curve, they first of all need to build a permanent routine of looking outside the organization, looking into the future and doing this in a collaborative fashion. This is why we often emphasize that firms need what we call a radar. And the radar is just a representation of the artifact which comes out of an approach. And that approach is that you put your knowledge which you have about the future or the trends you see into a common framework. You also keep discussing inside that framework and with the terms and, and upgraded it if necessary. And once you have observations, one you have tried something out, that also feeds back to that knowledge. And I think that needs to be a routine which leadership teams need to build and need to build also collaboratively. And when you say collaboration, Rena, I mean, obviously the listener could be thinking you're talking about collaboration inside organisations, but I... I know that you'd be also saying it's also about collaborating with people outside the organization because they will have completely different ideas about the future. Yes, and here's a big dilemma because ultimately, as, as a particularly a for-profit organization, you will also build your superior rents, as we say as academics, or your superior profitability and performance on an advantage and that is an informational insight advantage on, on which the fundament is, is built on and that means that you need to know or have understood something which somebody else has not or maybe nobody else has and that puts you in a dilemma that on the one hand you want to um, integrate a lot of knowledge but you will also want to keep something for yourself and the good thing is that this, this sharing early ideas has become much more widespread. In my own time, we, in telecommunication, we've been very open, even with direct competitors. We had exchanges 
on the foresight level. So trends which are you know, three, five years into the future are then perceived as pre-competitive. So we can discuss that. And I think that's, that's fundamentally important to, to bring in there your partners. But there will be also exercises where you say, if I want to create an electric mobility market, I need as a manufacturer of cars, for instance, to be open to discuss with our mobility providers, with you know, the providers of devices like mobile phones, understand what kind of apps can, can enable a mobility as a service experience, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is also where Foresight can help a lot to create that discussion across different partners of a future value chain which co-create that value and also the value network or value chain, which can deliver on that. Yeah, because, I mean, the future, I mean, I think it's through collaboration and, and, and people who have different ideas to bring people in who disagree or see it quite differently actually create the most fertile information exchange rather than people who tend to be coming from agreement or disagreement, but a mix of people who both see you know to me there's the volatility and the percussion of ideas is is just as important as the quality of thinking in the ideas mm, i fully agree and still you know the, the huge challenge is if you put people together who don't shame, share the same background who don't share the same industry or what we often also see who don't share the same corporate jargon uh, i mean it's it's even you know when you go in into a large organization as a consultant it takes you often an entire month to to just understand the jargon the the the, the abbreviations which are being used the terms which are being referred to because as an outsider you, you would not have used them this way or you might not know what these abbreviations are all about and that same you have in these collaborative settings and the only way to win this game and, and be effective about it is that you have very strong common frameworks. And that's why we use things like the radar or we use scenarios. And then often once we build scenarios, we build also videos of those scenarios because that raises the chance that people have actually not only acknowledged the existence of scenarios, but really immersed into them and started yeah. thinking about them tremendously. And once you have built this common ground, then this collaborative value creation, value network creation, market creation, solution creation can really become effective. Thanks, Rene. I'm going to uh, I'm going to wrap it there. So, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up again. Good to hear you're going well, and I hope things work out well for you in France. And we can do another uh, we can do another talk once you're in your new job in your new university. <laughs> sounds great sounds great yeah i'll be looking forward to that and looking forward to stay in touch um i'll be very sad when i heard that, that the master program is not there in australia anymore but now i'm very happy to see that the people involved are still alive and kicking and pushing the envelope thanks Rene. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. 
Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.